This is Friends of Europe. For more, go to friendsofeurope.org. So good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to our conversation today about the ripple effect and water as a tool for peace and sustainable development. I'm Shada Islam from the Friends of Europe team. Now, in today's world of great power competition, the talk is often about the drivers of confrontation and conflict. And of course, at Friends of Europe, we look at those as well. But we also want to look at the drivers for peace the drivers for cooperation and transboundary cooperation. And water, water resources can be both. So if there is unequal access to water and if there is competition about sharing resources, poor governance, if you like, then of course this can lead to tensions. And we see this. We see this in many, many parts of the world. But if there is good management of water resources, if there is cooperation, it can also be, and we hope this will be the case more and more, a tool for peace and sustainable development. Of course, water resources are also linked to the wider issues of climate change, food security, and energy security as well. And today, um, at this event, which I see as a kind of collective brainstorm, if you like, because there's expertise here among the speakers that I will uh, soon introduce, but also a lot of expertise and experience in the room itself. So I really would like you very early on to start engaging with us. Let me introduce our speakers very, very briefly. Uh, Naho Miromachi, King's College London, an expert on the politics and governance of water resources, down here from London just for a few hours. Naho, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Also in Brussels, just for a few hours, is Sandeep Vaslikar. He's president of the Strategic Foresight Group based in Mumbai and has been involved in many, many transboundary cooperation issues as regards water. And Sandeep is on his way to Geneva, and we are so grateful so grateful that you could find the time to come here. So thank you very much indeed. Also in Brussels, just for a few hours, and so we're really lucky to have all these wonderful people here, uh, Therese Newlander, Sustainability, Sustainability Director at the Coca-Cola Company. And in Brussels, uh, at the External Action Service, Dominic Porter, who's uh, been working at the External Action Service for years on sustainability and diplomatic engagement with Asian and other countries. So thank you very much, all of you, for being here. Water is used in access in different parts of the world. Think about a dry region that still enables rich neighborhoods to have access to water but the poor neighborhoods to have to struggle to find the water. So it's really not about the physical amount of water that's driving the conflict. It's very much about the socio-political economic conditions that really shape the way water is accessed and used. So here I would also say beware of the binary trap of thinking of water as a tool for peace or a tool for war, because if we focus too much on these binaries, we then end up thinking in a more quantitative sense when we actually need to be qualitatively changing the ways in which people have access to water um, and allocation of water for multiple purposes. So thinking beyond the environment, thinking about the socioeconomic power dynamics that make it easy for some people, some users to access water and others to have to bear the burden, whether it be financially, whether in it be in terms of livelihoods, whether it be in terms of ecological damages. These are the things that need to be considered. So outside the water box now, what is outside the water box then? So a lot of the 
drivers of conflict really are connected with many of the drivers outside the water box, such as trade, for example. A lot of the water, between 70 to 90 percent of all water used, is for agriculture, which is globally traded in many parts of the world. So global trade, the changes in global trade, the Changes in food price, for example, also are big drivers. Also migration increasingly becoming a hot topic at this area about how much water you can allocate if people are, people are going to be changing internal, external migration. And also we need to think about the big sort of political regime changes. So the Nile is one of these great examples where there has been major political changes which has seen a dramatic change again in the dynamics of politics, the power relationships in how water is shared, not necessarily the climate, not necessarily the rainfall. Okay, thank you very much indeed. So the, so the gen, general political environment also counts for quite a bit, and of course we see that in the Middle East, but also in Africa. So we'll come back to some of the specifics uh, later on, but I'll turn to you now, Sandeep. In terms of specifics and case studies, I mean, you've been looking at this for very, very long and really are an expert on this issue. Which are the cases of transboundary cooperation that are good, that work, and which are the ones that really haven't worked at all? Uh, thank you, Shada. Uh, when we say good cases of transboundary cooperation, first let's understand what you mean by good. Yeah. And uh, a really good uh, practice of transboundary cooperation has three elements. Number one, there is a strong institutional mechanism. Number two, there is an engagement of highest political leaders, either at the level of heads of states or in the form of legal uh, uh, infrastructure of the country's concern. And number three, this institutional structure and the engagement of top political leaders is used for making some real difference to the people, for having joint development projects, whether in energy, whether in irrigation, whether in eco uh, uh, parks or whatever. Uh, because unless you are making difference to the, uh, to the life of common people, it's all useless. So now, using this criteria, if you have to look at some of the good cases and bad cases of uh, the transboundary cooperation, first of all, the water cooperation quotient uh, 2017 uh, rates all the 262 uh, shared river basins in the world on the quality of transboundary cooperation. So whatever is happening on any river, any shared river in the entire world, you can check the water cooperation quotient and get to know what exactly is happening. And that's, but, your, that's your publication? Well, we were centrally involved in that. Okay, that's on Strategic Foresight uh, Group website. But uh, thanks for giving me the uh, opportunity to advertise. But uh, coming to, the, coming to the, your, your, your main question, one of the best examples of transboundary cooperation is Finnish-Russian cooperation. Um, uh, another, of course, here in Europe is Rhine. Of course, Danube, but one of the best in the entire world. I mean, in the entire world, if I have to just mention seven or eight top, we score 100 out of 100 on water cooperation quotient are Finnish-Russian, Rhine, Danube, uh, Senegal River Basin, Gambia River Basin, and Niger is kind of moving there. Uh, so these are some of the five, six, the top. So if the world has to learn how to cooperate, you have to learn from West Africa or from Europe and, and Finnish-Russian cooperation. One of the worst examples of uh, water cooperation is you are soon going to face and you are going to have a huge debate on that here and there and there and there all over Brussels. And that is the UK-EU relationship. UK-EU water relationship goes only through the EU institutional mechanism. 
there is no bilateral relationship between UK and the Irish Republic. So the day Brexit happens, UK doesn't have any longer institutional relationship with Ireland at all. And while you can fight about uh, the, the road transport and customs and a lot of other things that are going to come up in question, the fish in the seven rivers which go back and forth between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic are going to go back and forth anyway. They are not going to care for Brexit. Brexit is irrelevant for the fish. And uh, the Brexit is going to be irrelevant for the water flows. And we are going to have a tough time because there is no institutional mechanism outside of the EU uh, working groups between, between uh, uh, UK and, and the Irish Republic. And this is going to be one of the biggest challenges of Brexit. Uh, some of the other uh, examples of uh, uh, good cooperation turning bad it's, uh, or challenging is uh, US-Mexico. US-Mexico is one of the top cooperation. I would say 80 out of 100. I don't know offhand, but that's... But when Mr. Trump, if he does go ahead and build a wall, how is he going to stop the flow of the water? He's going to have a big problem there. And if he tries to stop the flow of the water, you're going to have a big mess there also. So, so there is another case of big, big mess. US, UK, uh, sorry, US, Mexico, uh, Britain, uh, Ireland. Finally, finally, when you talk about water cooperation, and Dominic is here, and here in EU, as many of you would know, the focal point for water cooperation is in the development cooperation uh, director general. It should be in the political, because how development cooperation will solve the problem with, uh, uh, between UK and Ireland. So the great powers are not involved in this whole water cooperation business. Because uh, China, Russia are the only two great powers which really share rivers, but they are small rivers and they are operating at a very minimum level of cooperation. So it's not at a level where conflicts can happen, but they are at the minimum level. US doesn't have any uh, mm -hmm. kind of a common river with Russia or China, and China doesn't have a common river with US. So the whole theory of water cooperation cannot be tested at the level of high politics. Right. It's only a matter of development cooperation, mostly in Africa and in Europe. Thank right. you, Chara. I'm going to have a follow-up for you, but just before I do that, did anyone know about the Brexit water challenge? So you heard it here first, and you heard it from Sandeep. Thank you. <laughs> yes, we can. No, but thank you for alerting us to that. I have to confess, I, I wasn't paying attention to that at all. But I do have a question for you. Uh, India and Pakistan almost came to war, or was it almost a war, or was it a real war? We don't know. But they have an Indus uh, Water Basin Treaty Management uh, arrangement. That has, seems to have withstood the test of time. There is, that's, the, that's the hype around it. Your, your take? Well, you know, the World Bank helped in creating the treaty. The World Bank is very good at creating hype. So they say it's one of the best treaties. But uh, World Bank has a very good PR department. <laughs> if anybody from World Bank is here, they will uh, prove how right I am. <laughs> but anyway, the Indus Water Treaty is not a treaty of cooperation at all. It's a treaty of separation. It's a treaty of division. There are uh -huh. six major rivers that flow from the very northern end of India, and three of them go to Pakistan, the west, western rivers. The eastern rivers uh, flow substantially through India. Then they also uh, go to Pakistan. And the treaty simply says the three western rivers belong to Pakistan, three eastern rivers belong to India. So there is no cooperation, and there is nothing happening. Once in a while, there is a technical problem about you know, some dams in India as to how high water low should be. Mm -hmm. There is very good element in Indus Water Treaty, and it's very strong on arbitration. And uh, there is an arbitration created by the World Bank, and that works very well. 
but I have re read the results of all the arbitrations, and I don't know why they go there. I could do it much more cheaply for them. Because uh, what they do is, let's say if India is building a dam, and this is the size of the sluice gate, or this is the build of the dam, and Pakistan will complain, oh, it's too high. They go to arbitration. Arbitration is making money, money, money. And after that, they say, oh, India is saying 10 feet, Pakistan is saying 5 feet. The answer is 7.5 feet. And for every single thing, they have found this answer. They just take the middle position. And that's how this arbitration is working. But the, both countries, they accept, they pay the lawyers, and they go on. <laughs> But it's a treaty of division. It's one of the worst treaties as far as cooperation is concerned. Okay. Now, the propagandists say that Indus Water Treaty has survived three wars or whatever. You know, I'm an Indian, so it's a little difficult to define how many wars. But uh, <laughs> three wars or whatever. But I would say the other way around, that Indus Water Treaty has failed because it has not prevented any of the wars. Mm -hmm. In Senegal River Basin, they have actually prevented wars. In 1989, Senegal, Mauritania came to blows. Because of Senegal River Basin, they managed to prevent the war. Recently, during the Ebola crisis, not war, but there was going to be a major diplomatic conflict. Because Senegal River Basin Commission, they managed to prevent the diplomatic crisis. So a treaty is good if it manages to prevent wars on other counts. Because any two countries which engage in active water cooperation do not go to war at all. It's, it's, this is the conclusion of, after analyzing all the 286 shared river basins. Any two countries that engage in active water cooperation do not go to war for any reason whatsoever, whether related to water, not related to water. Thank you. Okay, thank you. We'll come back to some of that as well. And I'll, before I go to Dominic and get his point of view on whether the EU doesn't give the great power uh, politics more importance than development, uh, uh, Teresa, for you. So the private sector in this conversation, which, as Sandeep has pointed out, is a very complicated one, right? Um, well, yes, I know. I think uh, that the private sector um, can add a lot of value and um, also because water, for example working for Coca-Cola is a vital ingredient for us. So um, between 89 and 99% of our soft drinks consist of water. So it's one of our main ingredients. Um, so having that and, and managing that uh, and, and managing the risks is very, very important. And not only that, uh, a lot of the ingredients we use, obviously, next to water um, are, uh, are being grown through water. So it's, it's very important for our crops and the ecosystem. Um, and obviously the communities where we work in. So uh, we operate in, in 200 countries around the world. So uh, water, also being part of the communities and the markets where we are, uh, needs to have a stable position. So for us, um, managing the risks around water, um, both for us in the, in, in the um, producing uh, way, but also for the ecosystem and the communities is super important. And that's why we've set out a strategy uh, already a long time ago. And um, I think around the globe in 2017, we had 70 countries, 70, um, uh, working on replenishment, on reduce, on restore and protect the water and the water resources um, in, 205, in 250 projects. So I think the private sector is very much engaged um, for all the reasons just explained. And I think it's a very important element to take into account when looking at policies and bridging the divides. So, Teresa, how does that work? Are you part of uh, the conversation between governments? Are you, talking, are you sort of talking between you know, the people and the government? Where do you actually engage? 
Which pathways? We, we engage at all levels. So on local levels, um, our local operations, they engage with local communities, local partners, uh, linked to what's locally needed. Uh, we link on a more um, a European level or global level with the important partners. So WWF obviously is an important partner, but also GWP Med is an important partner. So we have many, many partners around the world with whom we partner and um, uh, who we also talk to policymakers together with them. So it's not something that we just go about on our own. It's clearly something that where you need to partner. And it starts at the local level. Um, and we have a very good voice there, obviously, because we're part of the community. Being active in so many countries and providing uh, products and being active in a total supply chain, we can do a lot. And that's what we try to do in a positive way. Okay. Thank you very much, Teresa. So, Dominic, I left you for last because I wanted to come back to the European Union. So, uh, in 2013, there was an EU strategy communication that came out. And then last year, in November 2018, about enhanced EU water diplomacy engagement. And I was wondering... This climbed up the agenda pretty fast, and can you explain why? Is there more of a sort of sense of awareness of the, the, the potential for peace and conflict? What's the policy? What's the politics behind this? Thanks. Um, thanks very much, uh, Shada, for the invitation, and, and thanks to Nahos and Deep Therese for, for, for what you've said. Uh, I'll come straight in and sort of, sort of well, why am I here? Huh? Why, why is somebody from the diplomatic arm of the, of the EU here? Uh, because it's a foreign policy issue. Uh, foreign policy in the broader sense... Um, security policy, you may know the estimate from UN Environment, 40% of armed conflicts have some kind of resource, not necessarily water, but resource base uh, as, 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 a, as a stress factor. Uh, World Economic Forum says that uh, out of the top five uh, risk factors today, uh, four of them actually are connected to uh, environment or climate. Hence, a growing interest from the foreign policy community, I hope driven uh, in the EU as much as anywhere, to look at this in a very holistic way. Um, why uh, the High Representative's uh, position on, um, as expressed in the global strategy, on an integrated approach to preventing conflict and managing crisis is precisely the kind of vision which says water, it's an issue for development, it's an issue for sustainable development, but it's also a cause of tension. It's an issue for diplomatic engagement and dialogue. The EU is a dialogue promoter, sometimes a facilitator, sometimes a super mediator. Take the case of Iran, for example. Um, and, um, and it's a case where, uh, in the long term, when we look at, for example, the impacts of climate change, it is not going away, uh, whether there's uh, too little water or too much water. Uh, just look at Mozambique today, extreme weather event. Too much water is the big problem now. Already waterborne diseases are starting to spread very fast. Look at uh, rising sea levels due to climate change. Look at Bangladesh. 15% of its land area may disappear in the next 15 or 20 years. 15% of the land area of a country with a population of Bangladesh. The Pacific, um, the Pacific as well. And in, uh, islands in the Pacific may disappear altogether. Yeah. Uh, these are existential, uh, existential questions. Uh, that's about sea level. It's not about transboundary river cooperation. Sure. But I'm just trying to portray the issue in its, in its full scope, if you like. So water can be uh, or will be basically about national, transborder, regional instability, or, as you said at the beginning, the opposite of instability, cooperation, institution building, systemic change, and so on. 
what have we done um, with DG development and DG environment and the external action service working extremely closely together, and I stress that, extremely closely together, over the last year or so, um, we've worked on how to push, push from all ends, if you like. So push from the development end, what do we do on the ground? How do we um, reorient our development assistance, which we're in the process of doing for the next period, um, so that we take a more sort of comprehensive approach to these challenges? Water, food security, climate change. Um, how do we uh, engage better, uh, raising the level of dialogue amongst and with the countries of Central Asia, for example, Immediately following our council conclusions, there was an EU Central Asia Ministerial where if you look at the communique, water takes up about uh, mm -hmm. 20% of, of, of the political outcome. That wasn't an accident, I hope, I like to say at least. Um, and then even on the high sort of multilateral stage of, well, the, the pinnacle of it, which is the UN Security Council, we have, together with and thanks to, frankly, the EU's members of the Security Council, particularly for example, the Netherlands, um, now Sweden, Germany, uh, Belgium just having come in, pushed these cross-cutting issues of climate security, water security, mm -hmm. onto the agenda of the Security Council, where 10, 15 years ago, they were very much treated as development issues, and the Russian Federation, for example, would say, oh, keep that in the General Assembly. There is a gradually increasing acceptance that these subjects need to be treated at the, at the highest political level. They, they contribute at least if not cause, uh, threats to international peace and security. Um, so that's, that's why we're doing it. Uh, do we have the credibility to do it? Uh, I can come on to that a little bit later if you like. I think so, because there are good examples. You've mentioned them, uh, either between um, Europe and its immediate neighbors or within Europe. The Danube is the world's most international river. Uh, 1850s when the first sort of international cooperation on how to manage yep. that river began um, and now we have in the EU the water framework directive from 2000 which governs all, basically all aspects of cooperation from the environmental to the mobility transport and so on which is precisely I think what Sandeep is referring to uh, in the case of a hard Brexit which would leave things in a bit of a mess Thanks very much. Right. So I've seen that within the Asia-Europe meetings, for instance, within ASEM, the EU is taking uh, part in many conversations that have to do with teaching, if you like, the reconciliation process around water resource uh, management. So I was just wondering, is that now for you, is that somehow recognized that the EU's experience in uh, transboundary cooperation is something valuable, kind of to be shared with, with the general public across uh, borders? I think there's a great lesson learned to be had from the institutional building that has really looked at the quality of water and not just about how much water you're going to share across countries. But the caveat here is to say that there is no one-size-fits-all type of treaty or one-size-fits-all type of framework. And so we have to take into account the local context in which water is contested, the ways in which water is used, the ways in which water is very much integrated to different kinds of development goals, different kinds of nation-building efforts and regional integration efforts. So while we can take some good principles, for example, 
example, looking at the ways in which equitable use, looking at the ways in which no harm done can, uh, needs to be followed, how that actually plays out in each different river basin will be different. And, and this is a point that um, I'd like to bring in this idea of having uh, the problem shed. So I think a lot of my speakers, fellow speakers, have talked about the fact that you can't just look at the river basin in and of itself. You actually need to look at what kinds of problems, not the watershed, but the problem shed. And that would be able um, to see cooperative actions that would enable to find um, solutions that different parties can work towards. So not just thinking of the basin as a hydrological, very uh, static unit, but thinking more about the problem shed, I think, could be quite useful in this regard. Okay, thank you very much uh, to the to the panelists, the speakers. I said it was a kick-starting uh, conversation. I'd like to turn to you now for your comments and questions because I think this is important that we share the expertise and experience of these wonderful people. So please, let, can I have a show of hands? I see two, two hands going up as well, three. So let's start with you. Please just identify yourself. I have a, f I have a colleague who will come with a, with a microphone to you. Um, identify yourself, please, and then let's go. My name is Frank Schwalbehot. I'm one of the founders of the German Greens and the first Green MEP here in Brussels. Mostly to Dominique. I've worked for several years in Central Asia, first for the European Commission project and then for the World Bank. And for me, it was incredible. RLC, the countries concerned, there was no contact between these countries. And due to this project, supported by the European Union, it was possible to bring people from the different countries together. There were even tanks at the border between Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan because one side has not fulfilled their obligations. Therefore, I would hope that in the future, on other occasions, the European Union Commission, you, would fulfill this role of honest broker in bringing the people together because the EU is an example of having strange countries together and therefore, strange countries in another place of the world would accept this mediation. And a short warning, I'm very grateful what was mentioned about UK and, well, Northern Ireland and Ireland. A warning, Niste River, this river between two and a half countries, Moldova, Ukraine, and Transnistria, not recognized. There the tensions are raising because two corrupt countries are not one, not recognized countries, are doing things in contradiction to their agreement, to their treaty, which they have signed. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, panelists, keep this in mind. I'll come to you in a minute. But how can we sort of, when we see the foresight is there, we see, as you've said very clearly, an emerging problem. Uh, do we have the tools within all our... I, I'll come to you in a minute. So keep this in mind when you answer. Do we have the tools to, inter, to act preventively is the question. Please, sir. Um, Um, my name is Hassan Desfish from Democratic Party of Iranian Kurdistan. Uh, basically, I want to try drive your attention to the uh, how water impact on the internal conflict. Mm -hmm. For example, Iran has invested for many decades on the center of the country, which is belonged to Persians ethnic, and deploy other ethnic from the development. But at the moment, central government is going to be like a desert and they are going to redirect water from the, for instance, Kurdish region to the center of the Iran, which will uh, basically engulf conflict between ethnic diversities, 
which you are going to destroy environment of the country in benefit of others. So the main, the main question is how this kind of you know the, uh, w water policies impact an internal conflict, which I think is very worse than the conflict between countries. Indeed, thank you very much indeed for uh, bringing this to our attention as well. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Neil, you had a question at the back. Yes. Yes, I'll come to you in a second. Let's just take the young colleague there. Hello, I'm Julian Tate-Smith. I actually work for Friends of Europe. Um, you mentioned the agreement within the EU concerning water management. I wonder whether there are agreements um, for the EU with its border countries, particularly maybe on the eastern side, and how transposable are these agreements with um, or for other regions, perhaps uh, in... Um, in uh, um, I Ireland um, or maybe other areas in the world. Thank you. Thank you. And then the gentleman here, and then we'll go back to the panel for some comments. Yeah. Thank you, Shada. I'm Mr. Barotti. <coughs> I'm Senior Research Fellow within Research et Documentation Juridique Africaine, a group of African lawyers. And uh, first of all, I want to thank the, all the presentators because uh, they raised already all the issues. And since I'm in Africa, after the intervention from uh, Iran <laughs> representative, I want to give some comments about Africa situation. <clears throat> Beyond the presentation of the speakers, we have in Africa the problem of uh, the lack of communication between uh, political leaders and people uh, on the ground. Most of the time, the agreements are found between uh, governments, bilateral or for regional agreement on uh, water uh, resources uh, 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 use, but they don't disseminate the, um, the content of the uh, agreement to the population. And at the end, when there are two uh, countries, the, for example, the, for the case of the uh, Senegal Basin and Gambia. When Senegal people uh, meet uh, Gambia people in the Senegal water, they are, uh, uh, they are very angry, but there is already an agreement between the two countries, but people didn't uh, have the date uh, information. That is the first uh, point. The second is the political dialogue between uh, between leaders. In my country, we have uh, the Congo River, who serve also as a border with Congo Brazzaville and Republic Centrafrican. And the same river in the side of Republic Centrafrican is called Ubangi River. And most of the time, the Republic of Chad want to cooperate with Central Republic for the use of uh, uh, Congo River without contacting directly uh, the Congolese side. That is the issue that as we try to, to discuss at the global level, the issue that we yeah. should take into uh, consideration. Thank you. Thank you very much. And indeed, I wanted to bring up the issue of uh, engagement with people before we embark on any kind of, and how that, any kind of arrangement and how that gives resilience, I guess. Uh, to these arrangements. I do have time for a question, but I'm going to take a question from a woman. Please, we've had four interventions. Uh, thank you very much. There you go. Thank you. 
So, Sophie from uh, WaterAid, um, EU representative for WaterAid. Um, thank you for the first um, introduction you made uh, highlighting socioeconomic conditions. I think it's really key. Uh, my question is more for Mr. Potter. Um, I wanted to know with the new EU Commission we will have, new European Parliament, new budget, um, how we are going to make sure that this, I think, renewed political momentum on water is going to translate in terms of really outcomes for the poorest communities in low-income countries. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Anyone else have a burning question at this stage? Otherwise, I'll turn back to the panelists. So let's start with you, uh, Dominic. Been quite a few questions for you, and then go, go the other way. Thanks very much, and thanks, thanks indeed for all of these comments and, and questions which are uh, bang on, on, the, on the button. I, I'll try to just quickly sketch through. Um, um, uh, Frank, on, the, uh, on Central Asia, the Aral Sea, uh, the disappearance or virtual disappearance of Aral Sea, and the establishment of the, of the EU Central Asia water platform now uh, 10 years ago, um, you're absolutely right. Uh, it's essential. The EU um, has some kind of standing or status. It cannot uh, intrude. It cannot insert itself with countries which don't want to, simply don't want to listen. And there have been ups and downs, uh, to be perfectly frank, in, in, the, in the degree of uh, our ability to help facilitate talks. But what happened, for those who don't know, in Central Asia is basically under the Soviet system you had very fixed, easy, straightforward arrangements of swaps between water and energy. You know, you, you provide the water, you get the energy in return. And, and, it, and it broke down. This is one of the many things that broke down uh, with, with, the, with the fall of the Soviet Union. And so these tensions have been simmering, if not rising, uh, for many years. Uh, all I can say is that in January was the, a sort of a revival meeting of this uh, European Union Central Asia uh, water platform. And we are um, hoping that uh, it, alongside, as we say, the actions on the ground, specific actions, uh, d development actions, this political dialogue can, uh, can bear fruit and involve all of the parties. Um, Iran and the difficulties between central government and uh, perhaps outermost uh, regions. Uh, again, uh, the introduction of water as a subject of dialogue, mm -hmm. specific dialogue between the EU and certain bilateral partners mm -hmm. is a, a relatively new phenomenon. We have it now as a, with China, yeah. with India, yeah. uh, and with Iran. Um, so I take good note is, is the sort of short answer of your specific comment. Um, I won't go through all of them, but uh, transposability, uh, I think, um, uh, Naho, you mentioned it's, it's almost impossible to, to, to replicate any, any given situation to, to another one. Um, yes, the EU has experience and certainly has experience of building the kind of institutions or, or institutional cooperation, sometimes legally bound, which is, is uh, lasting, which uh, basically ensures that the likelihood of disputes is, is, is absolutely minimal or too costly to be worth bothering, if you like. Um, and on our borders, we have, through the neighborhood instrument, we have cross-border cooperation programs, we have twinning, we have lots more uh, tools, if you like, than we do with, with our, our wider cooperation. Um, so uh, the hope is that they can, uh, they can allow us to see what's good in which situation. Um, then uh, on Africa, dis I mean, the, what, I, what I took about your, your point uh, about dissemination to the community level mm -hmm. of agreements reached at political level, that's 
so vital. Um, I would say not just dissemination afterwards, the point is involvement of the community level from the beginning. Um, that's something which has been learned um, particularly uh, in areas where uh, those people who are actually going to have to manage, to physically manage, that's the central government is not going to manage um, every single uh, case and question of water cooperation on the ground throughout countries like Chad and the Central African Republic. It's down to communities. So the engagement at the beginning and obviously dissemination and help uh, afterwards is vital. And Sophie asks a great question. Uh, Sophie from uh, WaterAid, whom we know well. Uh, will the next college take this up? Listen, um, well, we've got at least one MEP here. Um, don't know if uh, future MEPs will, will be allies of ours. It's up to us, to be honest. Uh, when, we, when we prepare our incoming college, our new high representative vice president, um, I can't guarantee what's going to come out. Uh, I can guarantee you that I will do my utmost, and I'm pretty sure so will my colleagues in the, in the partner bits of the European uh, Union system, to make sure we speak from the same, we sing from the same sheet to our different incoming commissioners. So hopefully, uh, they will all come to the same conclusion that this matters. Um, I'm not, I can't guarantee it, but I am pretty sure that they will, uh, they will take this up. Thanks. So, Sophie, the thing is that we have to guarantee that this happens, so we have to push also from our civil society perspective. And I think that is exactly what events like these are meant to achieve, if I may say so. you want to come in very quickly? No problem. Just to say exactly in relation to that, that we are going to launch a campaign around the EU elections on the importance of water, sanitation and hygiene. So we will do our part to make sure that next... Parliament uh, makes water a key priority. Absolutely. Thank you very much indeed for that. Sandeep, please, your comments on many of these issues. Well, Dominic has already <coughs> addressed quite a few of them, so I won't, uh, uh, I won't repeat. Uh, but uh, in response to one of the things that France said about the Nister uh, River, uh, well, and your uh, reflection on that, it is possible to uh, uh, not to predict but to anticipate where the tensions could come and to try to undertake uh, uh, preventive steps. Uh, and there are a number of tools being uh, prepared. But what I would like to point out, uh, echoing what uh, Nao said uh, in her opening remarks, is that a lot of the efforts or the tools which are being made to anticipate uh, uh, conflicts over water are working on very simplistic equation that if there is a shortage of water, there could be conflict. And if there is a... Yeah. Uh, but this is simply not true. So all these tools which are based on anticipating shortage of water because of climate change or whatever, they don't necessarily indicate where the tensions would come from. Uh, so that is something... Why, why that, not? Huh? Why not? No, I mean, that's not the only indicator. You have shortage of water in Singapore. It's one of the least... Uh, true. Uh, uh, Water-rich. Yeah, <laughs> water-rich country. And you have uh, tremendous water in Bangladesh. And uh, you have conflicts, you have issues in Bangladesh and you have no issues in Singapore. Mm. So it depends upon... Governance? Uh, it depends upon three issues. Political, institutional, economic. So you really have to decide, you, you really have to assess the political, institutional and the economic factors. How they are uh, being managed. And that is what would uh, give indicate. I would just like to say one other thing, uh, which was not coming from the, uh, directly from the questions but uh, related to the question that you raised, uh, uh, talking about Kurdistan, uh, that in terms of internal uh, management of water, uh, this is really a serious issue, a lot more than the transboundary. 
uh, water, if you look around the world, whether it is uh, state to state, whether it is uh, uh, district to district, whether it's even town to town. And there is a tendency in countries uh, around the world to try to kind of transfer water from, uh, through pipelines and other means from one sector to another. The other issue regarding the internal uh, water management or water situation is that the terrorist groups, uh, they try to take control over the water resources and uh, uh, try to um, uh, uh, kind of prevent uh, water going to the downstream districts or downstream villages as a, uh, as a weapon of war. In fact, ISIS, the entire strategy of ISIS was based on control of dams, control of reservoirs, and so long as they controlled Tapka Dam and the Mosul Dam, which were the two largest dams in Syria and Iraq, they were uh, having a field day. The day lo uh, ISIS lost Mosul, within a short time, they lost most of their territory in Iraq. And the day they lost uh, control over Tapka Dam, within two months they lost 90% of their territory in Syria. So uh, the terrorist groups manipulate the internal water situation uh, quite a lot. It's not only the states, but also these violent non-state actors that you have to watch out. Uh, can, I, can I just have a quick follow-up with you, Sandeep? Yeah. So these water partnerships that Dominic was referring to, I know there's one with India, China, and I forget the third, third country, Iran. Um, right. Uh, are, are they valuable? Are they, are they useful? Uh, I think definitely yes for knowledge exchange uh -huh. because uh, there is a lot to be gained in terms of uh, uh, identifying new reference points. Uh, but one of the most valuable partnerships the EU has is actually with Turkey. So even though Turkey, I don't know whether they will ever become a member of EU or not, and it's a different political issue, but one area where Turkey is very active is really implementing the water chapter of the EU-Turkey talks. Right. And that they have gone ahead and they're implementing, and they have raised 20 billion euros of their own money to clean up the water resources as per the EU standards. So whether Turkey joins EU or not, they want to bring their river basins at the same level as the, those set by the Directive 60, the European Framework Directive 60. So there is a dialogue there at various levels between EU and Turkey. So that's very useful because Turkey is next door. And it's, it wants to be, I mean, it still sees itself as a candidate country. But India, China, which are far away, uh, it's a more exchange of knowledge. Uh, for that, it's useful. It's uh, exchange of inspiration and uh, uh, reference points. Right. Thank you very much. Teresa, please. Yeah, maybe the thing I haven't heard that much is education. Um, whereas politics and, and the difficulties around that are not for companies to, um, uh, to build down. I think companies working together with great partners like WWF, GWP Med, we can do a lot around education. If I look at the many projects that we've done around Europe, you see that education is a very strong part. So around the Danube, um, uh, we also have several projects uh, there together with our partners. Um, we've done a very big education part where we toured with a bus, a WWF set that up, to, um, to educate the people around the Danube and to educate what it means to really restore and, and replenish um, that beautiful area. And so if you then look at those numbers, we managed to reach 75,000 people directly and over 9 million indirectly through social media. And I think that could be one of the things that uh, when cooperating on a local level um, with great partners, um, you can overcome some of the... Um, um, the roadblocks that you otherwise might have from a policy point of view, and you can break through those barriers. 
Um, and it's not only that, it's also educating farmers and working with them for us as a company, for example, and working with them on new innovative technologies and showing them how the model also works for them because clearly there needs to be a what's in it for them as well. Um, and so working on that level, I think, uh, from a private sector point of view, but together with, with uh, scientists, with partners, you can overcome some of those barriers that otherwise just keep on existing because of politics. So that's the remark I wanted to give. I mean, surely we cannot fix the politics as a private sector, but for sure, working on a different level, or working on a local level, really trying to add value for the communities, and again, very, very agree on the socioeconomic element, um, we, can, we can help out there and we can make the, the right investments that really help build those local communities on a socioeconomic healthy base. So you know that, uh, I don't know, four weeks ago, we, three weeks ago, we had a similar sort of brainstorm on educating girls and the importance of girls' education and Agenda 2030 uh, implementation and achievement. And I was wondering, do you pay special attention when you said education, also women, the gender perspective on all this? We tend to just forget about these things, but they're Absolutely. important. Yes, and they're very much interlinked for us. So if we look at our sustainability commitments and goals, for example, um, the program 5 by 20, as we call it, so um, 5 million females by 2020, we want to have them educated to be, um, to be uh, better equipped for the future. And that might be to run their own business or to be um, developed in, in the right level, at the, right, at the same level as uh, maybe their, uh, their male colleagues. So um, absolutely, for us, educating young women or educating women uh, in particular is very important as we see that they could be of great value of um, coming to better solutions, be it around water, be it around other topics. So absolutely. And for us, they are very, very much interlinked. Right. Okay. Sandeep is looking at me as though to say, yes. I need to say something. No, so just, do. just one sentence that in our work, what, what we found was that uh, some of our collaborators, the educating women in the refugee camps has been extremely useful and essential in water management. In uh, particularly, I'm talking about the refugee camps in the Middle East. We have many partners that are working there. And that's what they give a lot of importance to. And they found it very uh, rewarding. And women, in, women leaders of refugee camps and also the local uh, uh, municipal or the village level leaders. That's where really it's critical. And it's only women there. Who, who call shots, and, and so that's very important. Thank you very much indeed. Now? A great range of questions, um, and I think this, the fellow participants have also started to begin answering them, but I'm particularly inspired by the comment about communication and the African context, so I'll take it from there. A lot of the times, uh, data surrounding river basins in transboundary contexts are, are treated as national security issues. So there are dealt with a level of very high security, it's dealt with a lot of secrecy, it doesn't go into the public domain, it's very difficult to ask for public disclosure of these data. And so if that's the situation, how on earth are you going to get the local communities involved? Mm. And so there's got to be a little bit more thinking about how can we make sure that this data is more transparent and that there's a wider ownership of the information and data surrounding these 
river basins or else you, you'll never get the buy-in of the local communities, the river basin managers, etc., to work towards solutions. And in this regard, I think um, the idea that the state is solely responsible for dealing with water access and allocation uh, might start to prove uh, challenging because increasingly we're seeing polycentric nodes of decision-making where it's not just the state that makes these decisions and brings them uh, top-down to the local communities. Actually, water, uh, decisions around water, around access and allocation need to be made at polycentric, different nodes of authority, whether it's between local community leaders, whether it's between different regions, um, uh, districts, between urban districts, peri-urban districts. There, there has to be a more sort of plural way of of understanding how decision-making can be done. And I think that's the way in which we can bring in the marginalized communities, for example, in Iran. The marginalized communities who have been traditionally been uh, pushed away from mainstream decision-making and through a more polycentric approach, I think we can get a bigger voice, a bigger understanding of the, the ideas around how water can be used as a tool for peace. But now, how do you get that with governments being actually in many parts of the world quite wary of civil society and actually the space for civil society shrinking and shrinking? Who can, who can make sure that this conversation takes place? I think it comes down to a lot of the times the leaders um, from the communities, from the different districts, from the different, um, even the governmental agencies who are willing to champion water issues and to un make the water issues understood as not just a siloed issue of just water. It's also about water and agriculture. It's about water and food sustainability. It's about water and infrastructure. It's about water and energy, water and climate, as we've talked already. So thinking about the ways in which water, again, reaches out to different uh, topics, different responsibilities, I think that's the key. Okay. I am happy to take, if, you, if anyone has one more question, I'm happy to take one from you. Yes, please. So two more. All right. Quick ones then. I understand the European Commission, but asking a question of personal capacity to clear up some confusion. The paper obviously said that there's water cooperation, there is no war. Now I'm wondering, what is the chicken, what is the egg? Is the water cooperation, because it's such a difficult topic, the car that is being pulled by the general peaceful cooperation, and it's kind of a benchmark to show that countries can work together, or is it that way around? Once you manage to get some water cooperation, you therefore build the basis for further peaceful cooperation in other areas as well. Mm, thanks a lot. So a gentleman over here, just put up your hand, please, so my colleague sees you. Here, Claire. Thanks. My name's Andrew, <coughs> Andrew Proudlove. I'm a security consultant working in Brussels, and I work with the European Centers of Excellence over the last decade in uh, Southeast Asia, in Africa, and the Middle East, and currently working on water quality in Southeast Asia and security projects in the Middle East. Uh, I'm looking at your middle question, uh, what works and what doesn't. I was interested to hear Sandeep talk about League Division One of the cooperation agreements in uh, EU, West Africa, and Mexico, US, and also interested to hear Teresa talk about local action. Uh, and, and first, I'd ask two questions, really, to ask Sandeep, is there an example from your League Division One that would work in the Middle East? Uh, and, and Teresa, what, what are you doing at the local level in the Middle East? Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. So let's go back to the panel. We still have about uh, 
10 minutes, quick exchange. So, Dominic, once again, start with you. Sure, thank you very much. Um, I'll just pick up immediately because you, you, you mentioned uh, the Middle East and I was thinking it might help us all to, um, to look at a more concrete example. And when Nahar also mentioned the connections between, the interconnections between water security, uh, energy security, um, and, and the reduction of tension and conflict, I wanted to, to cite an example, a concrete example, uh, which the EU has been involved in. Um, towards the end of last summer, we completed a, a photovoltaic field mm -hmm. in South Gaza. And this uh, will provide, through renewable energy, the desalination of water for 250,000 people. It adds to the central Gaza desalination plant, also financed by the European Union, um, which in total, when they are both on stream, which they very nearly are, um, the entire population of 2 million people in Gaza will be provided, A, with uh, drinkable water, uh, B, that will come from renewable energy sources, so they don't depend on anybody else to provide the energy for the desalination plants, which are um, quite energy intensive. Uh, and thirdly, obviously, this is in a, let's not, let, yeah, it's a conflict zone, uh, quite simply. And this helps a people otherwise isolated to survive from day to day. It is uh, through a project which is at the nexus, if you like, of water security, uh, therefore food security, because you need water to, for agriculture too, um, and, and, um, and the renewable energy revolution, which we all need in order to save the planet. So I just give you a concrete example which happens to come from the Middle East. Otherwise, the only uh, comment I would have on the sort of chicken and egg question, which is a the answer is both at the same. I mean, it, it, the chicken and the egg have to come together. It's a circle. Uh, uh, soft power, hard power, technical, political. Uh, which way do you go? And I think this is what the EU does quite well in some cases, is manages to, to go in and it's perceived not to be, as I say, too intrusive. So we can talk technical to start with. Um, but try and talk technical at a higher and higher level, mm -hmm. and so it be becomes political. That's, that's the aim, ultimately. Um, mm -hmm. uh, exchange experience in a non-confrontational way. Uh, facilitate uh, dialogue, perhaps, between different partners within a country who wouldn't naturally, perhaps, speak to each other. This is, this is our, our, our aim, and in some cases, our achievement. Um, and then, of course, helping on the ground with concrete projects, and the EU comes has the advantage of coming with relatively deep pockets, which uh, sometimes helps smooth things along. Um, all that put together, uh, I quite like the way the High Representative Vice President described it last week when she was giving a speech at Princeton University where she said, it's not about hard power, soft power, it's about cooperative power, and that's what she feels, and, and I think that's a good way to put it. The EU has this cooperative power uh, it's the power uh, through partnerships to uh, spread values, good practice, and, and, and things which are, yes, they're perhaps in the EU's interest for security around our own, our own neighborhood, but they are also in the interests of the region concerned and, in some cases, of, of, of the world. So, uh, Cooperative power with deep pockets, I think, is, uh, is the real template for progress. Sandeep, before I give it to you, let's go to Naho and Therese and give you the last word. 
Okay, so I think I'll take on the chicken and egg question. Um, I'll actually ask, who is the piece for? And I think that's the real question. Quite often we get blindsided by the big states talking about governments. But then if we think about the everyday struggles, the latent harms that are born through the lack of water, the lack of safe water, etc., asking peace for whom is a really important question. And I think that's why it's important to not just think about how water can be a, a simply a technical tool for achieving some, uh, you know, nice-looking. Uh, uh, handshakes uh, between premiers or beautiful words on paper. It's really about how can you actually qualitatively change the everyday struggles of people who are suffering from the harm of mm. not having enough water or not clean water. So um, chicken and egg question, it's, it's a very attractive sort of rhetoric, but I would also uh, make sure to put the who question on top of it as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Teresa. Um, the question about what we're doing uh, on a local level in the Middle East, um, the short answer is I wouldn't know because I really focus on Europe, but I'll be happy to find out for you. Um, so come and find me later and I'll, I'll, uh, I can come back to you once I have the details. But what I'm sure is that we as a Coca-Cola company are doing in terms of our own um, production facilities also in the Middle East um, is that we will protect the sources that are there, um, we reduce the water that we use, and we recycle the water that we use, so the wastewater, etc. It's all recycled um, and and given back. Um, so either in our own location or together with partners like the waste management companies, if it's there. And then the fourth pillar of the strategy that I talked about is to replenish and restore. And so there will come some projects, I hope, uh, in the Middle East that I can inform you about. But um, having had this strategy as a global company for many, many years, and as I've said before, uh, more than 70 projects in 2017, uh, um, or 70 countries in 250 projects, I'm sure that there are some good examples in the Middle East. So I'll come up to you. Thank you. Sandeep, please. Well, in the Middle East, not League One and not League Two or League Zero, whatever you call it, but in the medium level, uh, there, there are examples of transboundary cooperation. The Jordan-Israeli cooperation for the last 25 years has been a lot more effective than, say, Jordan-Syrian cooperation. In, you can only talk in comparative terms. Iraq and Turkey have launched a cooperation over Tigris River, not Euphrates River, over the last uh, two years. And they have agreed on creating, uh, establishing three friendship dams, uh, Turkey has agreed to postpone the filling of Ilusu Dam. Iraqi uh, officials are visiting Ilusu Dam all the time, and there is a dialogue taking place. But this is not the top level. This is, not the, this is somewhere in the middle. But to go back to our colleague in uh, European, uh, friend in European Commission who attracted everybody's response, uh, it's a double helix, like, you know, the double helix in our blood. So one wire goes like this, other wire goes intermingling with this. And it's, uh, it's not so much the cooperation between countries over water that prevents war. It's active cooperation. Hmm. And there's a difference between cooperation and active cooperation. Active not as an English active, but there's a scientific term active, which I can explain to you later. <laughs> but if you take the area around here, in, in Balkans, it started with, uh, with the political agreement, Dayton. And within four or five years, you had the Sava River Agreement. But in Senegal, it started with the Senegal River Basin, 
and then you had the prevention of political conflicts. In uh, Central America, it started with the Costa Rican peace plan. Within five years, they followed it up by the water. In uh, Europe, it started with coal and steel communities, soon followed by other uh, uh, water-related agreements. But before that, you already had a political uh, settlement. So it varies. Sometimes it begins with political settlement. I would say 60-70% of the time is political settlement. On a few uh, cases, it does start with water settlement, but then it operates as a double helix. And if you cut the double helix somewhere, there is no more blood flow, as in our body, as, as, as in the system of the earth. So the two go together. That's what I would like to say. One very last word to our African colleague. You know, the involvement of civil society, common people, all of that is fine. But in these words of these days of nationalism, we have to be careful. The public opinion can be uh, helpful in promoting cooperation, but public opinion can even drive away the well-meaning governments, away from a cooperative agenda, into a more nationalist and antagonistic agenda. And that's something we have to be careful, careful about. We can't discuss water in isolation from uh, the real politics of the world. Thank you, Shada. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you. Well, that's a somber word of warning that I was actually going to say how essential it is to talk to civil society and listen to public opinion, but you're absolutely right. Leadership can be driven away from uh, certain projects if there is a kind of groundswell of opposition. But thank you very much. So uh, I'm not going to try and resume. There will be an event report written by our wonderful rapporteur Paula Deer that you will see on our website. So I'm not going to summarize, but I would say that it is a mixed picture, isn't it? I mean, you started off, Sandeep, by saying 262 or so shared river basins. How many? <coughs> 282, I think. 282, you said, yeah. But only five or six uh, examples of really positive, uh, active, as you said, active cooperation taking place. So clearly, clearly there's a lot we can all do, uh, governments can do, but also local authorities, women, civil society, to make that uh, a bigger number. So uh, water is a tool for peace, but as uh, now uh, said very, I think, importantly, peace for who? Peace for whom? I think that is a very, very important to keep uh, in mind. And uh, we heard also that you can start technical, uh, and then go political, go up to the UN Security Council, but you can also do it the other way around. So I guess local landscape, local environment, local conditions matter. But above all, I think really question of leadership. And in this area, I think we can say that the European Union has a responsibility, given its own experiences, to share its political wisdom and it, the different ways in which it has made a success of some of its transboundary issues. And I think that is conversation, as I said to you, is taking place, I have to say, within the ASEM framework. So final point really is we're going to keep up the pressure. And I think the point you made, Sophie, about how the governance changing, uh, the change of the guard in the European Union, I think this is the moment when we have a topic that is so essential for world peace. Uh, we should keep it high up on the agenda. So thank you very much indeed to all of you for contributing to this uh, brainstorm. And thank you very much to our panelists for being here, uh, often for a very short notice. Uh, thank you very much indeed. <laughs>